Welcome to the Future Perfect Podcast, where we talk with compelling people breaking new ground in art, media, and entertainment. This podcast is produced by Future Perfect Studio, an extended reality studio creating immersive experiences for global audiences. Visit our website, futureperfect.studio, for more details. I'm Wayne Ashley, founder and creative director of Future Perfect. This week, we interview Andrew Keller, the man behind We Few Group, a post-media company that manages singers and songwriters and develops brand partnerships and ventures with internationally known visual and musical artists. Making innovative use of blockchain technologies and NFTs, Andrew has been building compelling projects with such noted organizations as the David Bowie Estate and singer-songwriter Stefan Storm. Okay. So, Andrew, welcome to our podcast. Hello. Um, let me start right off by saying how excited I am to be speaking to someone who's been part of the music industry for now close to 15 years. About? I love I love that, but I think it's closer to twenty at this point. All place. right, it's exactly it is. It will be. I I mm. for, I stepped foot in to my first internship at a label. Uh, I guess it'll be twenty years this year. It was two thousand three. Well, so yeah. As much wow. as I love music, you know, I have I, very little access to the inside workings of the industry, which is kind of amazing. Um, all the years I've been listening to music, I really don't have a sense of how the industry works. And you've had these, you know, long relationships with such labels as Columbia Capital Records, right? Yeah. I mean, I, so if you could summarize two or three of the most important ex experiences you've had or share with us those incredible insights you've gained during those years, what might they be? Um, sure. Um, I think the, um, the biggest insight is um, that change is necessary and change is hard. I think those are, you know, or, or rather, you know, when you are dealing with global major labels, um, it's really hard to make noticeable changes. Um, and I don't even always think, you know, I think labels especially get a bad rap. I think any kind of successful person any industry ends up getting some sort of a bad rap i think um i would love to just blame labels and say it's it's labels faults or you know particular people i think there's a lot of people at labels who want to do good and i think there's a lot of people at labels who are innovative um it's just really hard to turn a gigantic ship around um ever let alone without everyone being on the same page let alone when you're dealing with all sorts of policies and god knows how many different types of contracts that were written over the years and um also inertia <laughs> you know oh, yeah. I, 
and I'm sure this will come up a bunch of times as we talk about, you know, as, as we talk today, but I think inertia to me is one of the best and scariest things. Um, and, you know, I think for me getting out of there, um, and getting out of the major label system was really about that inertia and really about, you know, not about wanting to be an object in motion. Um, before we get to an object in motion, which is exactly what we want to talk about, tell me about what it is that you were doing over those years. Um, what, what were the major kind of focuses that uh, you had at Capital or Columbia? Sure. So I started um, I started at Columbia as a 17-year-old uh, total music head. Um, I grew up in New York City and that was one of the most important things that ever happened in my life was being born in Manhattan where I had access to absolutely everything. And thankfully yeah. I had parents who were simultaneously, I think really supportive and also slightly oblivious um, or you know, a good combination where, you know, from the time I was, you know, 13, 14, I was going out to places I probably shouldn't have been and exploring all sorts of different scenes, you know, from, nightclubs to hardcore and punk shows um you know to mainstream pop shows um and really just kind of giving myself a crazy education in what i figured out later was subcultures and figuring out you know little scenes and little pockets that you know had their own little worlds and archetypes and um systems in place and they're probably all relatively similar it's just people wearing different clothes and different hair and different you know but the whole concept of you know having these little scenes and worlds um always excited me um and again i and i you know it, it kind of all played into ideas of identity and sonic identity and visual identity and um so, yeah, so I basically was going to lots of shows and it was around, you know, at this point, we're talking like 2002, 2003, when there was this giant emergence of bands in the tri-state area who were kind of coming out of the punk scene and it became kind of this pop punk, emo, screamo, post-hardcore, you know, I kind of refer to it lovingly as like warp tour scene, which was this festival that traveled for, for years and um basically there was a ton of attention on bands that i was friends with and bands that i knew and bands that i had built relationships with as a fan um and i uh thought it was acceptable to basically say to you know labels hey you're trying to sign my friends can why don't you just hire me um and it actually worked and i got an internship at columbia records as you know an a and r scout basically and it was you know, that the only question that I was asked on the interview really was, do you have a fake ID? And of course the answer was yes. And, um, yeah, because, you know, I, I kind of knew my stuff. Like I was sitting there looking at, uh, you know, my boss's desk going like, you know, looking at demos going, Oh, I was out with those guys last night. Oh, I love, you know, I love, I, it was just, you, you knew that world. Um, now at the time it was really, really easy to know different worlds and really know everything involved because it wasn't that easy to make music and release music. Right. You know, like I was quote unquote managing the first, you know, the first band I ever managed was 
my high school best friend's band. And, you know, I remember like how, how much work we put in just trying to find a recording studio that we could afford to go and make demos and, you know, to pass out to other bands to get shows and, um, forget about talking about releasing anything really. Like I think we put some MP3s up on a website and, um, burned a bunch of CDs to sell at shows, but there was no, you know, there was no hope of like getting them on, you know, the iTunes store or the CDN store that we, that wasn't even thought about. So, you know, at, at this moment in time, it was like mp3.com was starting. Oh, and right. eventually there was like, eventually there was music on MySpace. But like, you knew at that point, like, I could have mm. told you every single band on mp3.com. I could, I probably emailed with them. I could have told you every single artist, uh, you know, on myspace.com and how many listeners they had and what state they were from. Like, I, you know, it, it was because you could, um, anyway, one thing kind of led to another and, uh, I ended up getting hired as kind of this junior scout slash assistant role at Columbia and got to work for some amazing people. Um, one of whom, He's kind of this incredibly legendary, legendary, um, small bald man named Matt Pinfield, uh, who was a DJ and then VJ on MTV. And he was the alternative rock guy. And I started working for him and it was incredible because, uh, first of all, everyone just loved him. And by, by everyone, I mean, artists, I mean, you could go anywhere and every artist knew him. Everyone you talk, if he got recognized on the street, it wasn't necessarily because he was famous. I mean, it was because he was famous, but people didn't want like a photo. They wanted to share a story. You introduced me to my favorite band. You're the reason that I know about it. You know, um, look, I think he was one of the first, I believe he may have been the first or second person ever playing Nirvana on the radio, you know, Mm. kind of one one of those, you know, types of guys. And he was also DJing at the time and had a TV show still. And so I was kind of, all over all of these different parts of his life. And I was in college kind I was in college at the time. Um, and so I'd like go to class early in the morning and then I would go to the office and I'd be in the office till like six. And then I would leave, go to like a seven, seven o'clock class, get out of there, at like eight, go to a show. And then, you know, he would be DJing. And a lot of the time, you know, we kind of ended up having a deal where he would get booked to DJ and then I would basically cover his set and he'd split the money with me. Um, if he had to leave or if he had to go somewhere. Um, and so I started DJing <laughs> and uh, again, it was just this awesome moment in time and, you know, being really young and just exposed to so many people. And it, it kind of, again, became clear to me at that point that like, I just loved meeting people and I loved being around creative people. I was, you know, to go back for one second, I was never in a band. I don't sing. I don't make me, I, I don't consider myself an, you know, an artist in any way, shape or form. Um, I consider myself a creative person and I consider myself a professional fan. And Mm. I, you know, by that, I mean, I think I know what I want as a fan, whether that's Mm. how I think something should sound sometimes or what I would want at a show or what I would want at a merch table or, you know, Mm. And I think I have a really good read and ability to go into people, you know, into the head of a fan. Um, and imagine. I, I don't, you know, I, it was never, I kind of realized really early on that for me, it was going to be about being the conduit and the kind of, you know, middleman between 
I don't want to say the good guy and the bad guy, but it was, you know, kind of the artist and the uh, rest of the world. Um, now, if you want to look at it as a good guy and the bad guy, and the artist is the good guy and the label is the bad guy, which again, I don't really believe. Um, I really quickly got into the, <laughs> onto the dark side. Um, you know, I was, I was that kind of conduit, but I was doing it from the label side. And, and again, it, it was amazing. And I was so incredibly lucky and got to do so much amazing stuff and meet so many fantastic people. Mm. Um, I was really lucky to have really great bosses, yeah. um, really great people who became mentors to me, some of whom I worked for, some of whom I didn't, but you know, all of whom I'm still incredibly close with, you know, some of them, you know, 20 years later, um, I made a ton of friends with my peers, you know, people mm. who I was interning with or people who I was assistant with who, you know, they were at my wedding and some of them are people who manage some of the biggest acts in the world now. And, um, you know, we can do business together. And I, to me, it really became about meeting people and finding interesting opportunities. Um, you know, and so I took kind of everything I knew about scenes and worlds and um i i kept being an assistant i'll, I'll speed this part up because we're, we're going long on to label life but um rick rubin came in to run columbia records and i was about to finish college and i got a call one day that rick wanted to meet me and i get flown out to rick rubin's you know amazing house in the hollywood hills um and just got to sit and talk to him and tell him about myself and hear about him. And he ended up kind of, you know, over the next few months, really getting to know me and ultimately promoting me to my first kind of grown up job. And when I asked him what my title was going to be, mostly because I want to figure out, okay, what's my salary going to be? What are my benefits going to be? He said, I want you to consider yourself a person who does good. Um, and it was the best title I've ever had. And it was true and he meant it. And, um, you know, I, I think that period of time at Columbia was really incredible and getting to work across like MGMT's first two albums as, you know, mm. as again, like a junior person as you know, the coordinator on the record and, um, then getting to sign, you know, bands on my own cults and, uh, you know, later doing a St. Lucia doing stuff in the dance space with Cruella and zoo and Dylan Francis and always just getting to work on things that really excited me and that I thought were really different. Um, and then, you know, one of the last things I got to at Columbia was bring me the horizon, which, you know, as a metal kid, it was like, I, I get to go into a major label and go, you know, get everyone to try and have a number one album with bring me the horizon. And that, that was, you know, unreal. Um, and that was all under, um, you know, Rick was there, but he had brought in, um, or right after Rick, I guess he, there was, a a guy named Ashley Newton, who is still one of my closest friends, uh, mentors. He's like Yoda, but British, um, you know, he was responsible for signing the Spice Girls and Massive Attack and, mm. Um, you know, again, just this, this whole breath of Daft Punk, Pharrell, all wow. of these incredible things and kind of getting to learn from him. And ultimately I went with him and Steve Barnett, who had been the chairman of Columbia over to, 
Capital Records when Steve was relaunching Capital years into that. Um, and at that point, I was thinking about leaving labels already. And so um, that's why I want to let me interrupt you there about leaving labels. Please, so, please interrupt me. I do, I do want to know because I think I, I'm very, very interested in um, kind of like major crises that kind of upend your assumptions about the world and you need to do something radically different than what you've been doing. You talked about inertia. What happened um, or was there anything specifically that you could, you know, articulate that happened that you needed to leave and you needed to start your own company, which I'm going to say is in 2019, 2019, um, but yeah, company so, called uh, we few group. Yeah. Um, so was there something that led to that, that you could, yeah. you know, articulate? <clears throat> yeah, there were a few things. Um, so leaving Columbia was really for me about, I was 30. I had started there when I was 17. Um, and I wanted a change. I wanted, I, I loved my artists. Um, I loved everyone I worked with. It really was a family. Um, but it was the, it was too comfortable. It was really too way. comfortable. Like anyone that would say, oh my God, what a, like what a perfect, you know, no, it, role it, that you have. Why would you want to leave it? You know, not everyone it, wants to leave those kind of jobs. They want to stay. No, I, mean, I know it, people it that just, stay in jobs it, like you have for like until they retire. It, it was just too comfortable. It was too. I, I wanted a different kind of look. The, if you do A&R at a label, right? Your real challenge at the end of the day is to sell records. Right, find artists, help them oh. make the best record possible, and and have as much success as you can. Um, there's a million ways to do it, and I'm not even saying I was good at it, great at it, okay at it, whatever. But at some point, that it's a very linear goal, right? It's <laughs> this is what you do. <laughs> you go from point A to point B, and that's fine, and it's awesome. But it had just. <clears throat> I, I, I had done it and I had done it there and I needed a change. And so I was, there were a million things on my mind. I'm obsessed with the live music world. I had thoughts of that doing stuff, you know, in that. And I had management stuff I wanted to do and there's all this stuff. And, and then Steve Barnett called me <clears throat> and basically said, you know, what would, what would you want to do if you were going to stay at a label? If you were going to change labels and you could do anything. Um, uh, what a great, what a nice question to be asked. It was a great question. And my answer was that streaming was starting to, you know, really become dominant. And mm. the thing that streaming changed, I personally, at least for me, more than anything, um, was access to global music. And I don't, you know, yes, world music, but also even, you know, music from the UK, right? Beforehand, you would, if you were a British band, you would sign to a label in the UK for the world, probably if you were signed to a major label, but like, unless something really took off, it might not even get a US release. Um, and so I had like fake iTunes accounts, lot, you know, linked to fake addresses in the UK. And I would go over to London to buy iTunes gift cards to buy those, or I would be importing stuff. I would be going around to record shops. I would be flying over there as much as I could to buy rec. I love, you know, British indie rock. Um, and it killed me that you couldn't get that. And all of a sudden, everything was coming out at once, right? For when Spotify started putting out music, for the most part, nothing was geo blocked. Everything was coming out day and date. 
but labels were still working things territorially. Um, and so I said, I think, I think there's going to be a really big shift in the way music is consumed from an international standpoint. And I want to over, I want to create international A&R um, 2.0. There were some, you know, international A&R has been a thing for a long time. That's how records that were put out overseas would end up getting a home in the U S right. There'd be people who had those relationships. And um, I wanted to figure out what that meant for the streaming world. And so off I went to Capitol Records and started doing uh, international A&R for them and kind of figuring out this whole system and also taking systems that were already in place and trying to break them um, because there were things that just didn't make sense to me and that I thought needed to be changed. And I was put in a position where I could, you know, do that. Um, and part of that was really just being the ambassador, right? And part of that was really, you know, first of all, kind of being a diplomat in some ways and, and being the person who could, you know, go and have some difficult conversations, but also go and represent capital, you know, around the world. Um, it was a lot of time on airplanes. Um, and it was that, that part of it was fantastic, right? It was go travel the world, meet people, see music. And I went on, you know, I think I talk about diplomats. Um, and I think a lot about um, spies and spy running. Um, maybe that's because I'm obsessed with the West Wing and Cold War spy novels. Um, but those were the two things that I kind of always looked at for me as like, um, I really believe that information is the greatest form of currency. Mm. Um, and I believe that you get information from relationships. And so to me, all I, you know, Everything I do is based on, you know, I would literally fly around. I would pick a place, right? Denmark. There was really good stuff at the time coming up, still is coming out of Denmark. And I was like, okay, I'm going to go, I'm going to fly over to Denmark. And I am going to, ahead of time, figure out who the best people I can meet are. And then I'm going to save a bunch of free time. And from all of my meetings, I'm going to go, who can, who should I meet while I'm here? And I would just go around and meet people. Amazing. And sometimes that would be going to festivals and being backstage and getting introduced to people and, you know, having a drink. And, it, you know, it sounds so silly. It sounds so, you no, know, oh, just going and drinking around the world. But it was it was really on this mission of collecting as much information as I could. And from that, you know, look, it's not necessarily that like I was stupid. You know, it's not that I'm wildly knowledgeable about the Latin music space, you know, for example. It's that. I spoke to some people who spoke to some people who introduced me to some people where suddenly I had, you know, insight and information that I gathered. And with enough information, you got to put pieces together and go, Oh, and this is a thing. And that, you know, okay, I need to know this person because they have these things going on. And then they're calling you and telling you about things, you know, again, you're a network, before. you're a network specialist. I, yeah, but I hate that. I, I'm a friend collector. You know, I hate the, I hate networking. I don't, you know, I, know, I don't, I didn't, yeah, I didn't mean, no, I, I know you way. didn't mean that. No, I, I know exactly. What, I just, you know, you get, love, you get, you get high on, on meeting people that come from yeah. totally different worlds than you even totally. can imagine. And then encountering them and making these extraordinary possibilities happen. Totally. I, I mean, exactly. That's, that's, I know exactly the feeling. 
and so, you know, and again, I'll, I'll speed this up because I feel bad for anyone listening to me right now. This has been going on for like a long time of me talking about working at record companies ish. Um, but basically at the end of my time at Capital, you know, I'd done a deal for X amount of time and I had, you know, a ton of fun and got to do awesome things and, you know, got to partner with Lewis Capaldi, who is, you know, a fantastic artist who has gone on to, you know, he's on his arena tour right now. And I, you know, put together and introduced capital to SM entertainment, um, one of the biggest K-pop labels in the world. And they have an amazing and fruitful partnership and, you know, we did great things. Um, but at the same time, again, I just, it was time for me at this point, I was, you know, in my thirties and I had never been, my, my brand had always been owned by a major corporation. Um, and there were things I wanted to do that I'd never be able to do in those situations, right? I wouldn't be able to music supervise a movie. I wouldn't be able to, you know, launch certain projects or do certain things. And which this is a perfect, this is exactly where I was going to go with you. Cause tell me if I'm mistaken. So I've been, you know, based on our conversations in the past and I've been reading about the work that you've been doing. This is what I see. We few group. I see you as an open-ended post media company. I love that. Can I use that? Can that just be absolutely a bio? yes? Because not um, only do you act as an artist manager, a mixing en- uh, engineer, an F- an NFT project producer, and an entertainment strategy consultant, you're also working closely with visual artists. <clears throat> you're producing a graphic novel, it's a potential film, and even knitwear. Which and knit- when well, you told well, me we, that we can't, we can't talk about you, the knitwear just yet. But yes, all right. There I'm is, just going to say it as a kind yeah, of general knitwear. category. There, there may be, I, 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 I dabble in sweaters apparently. But um, this kind of post media practice that you engage in is so damn exciting to me, and it's exactly what Future Perfect wants to do, and is in, and is doing. How are these different worlds and practices connected for you? It's really, really, really easy. Um, Tell me when I, when I went off to start this thing, um, everyone's like, what, what is it? What are you going to do? And I just said, I'm going to go do things that excite me with people I like. And that was it. That's the entire thing. <laughs> there are no, t- and actually, and it's actually not easy to get to, to that point. I have to say from, from my perspective, to finally get to that point where you say that's this is what I this is what I want to do. Those are my parameters, and it's not an or. <laughs> it's I have to be excited about it. And I have to like the people involved, and from there anything goes. Um, <clears throat> you know, and, and you know, going back to the knitwear thing. Look, it was literally there was a painter that there, I love that you're that I I'm, love that you're involved in that world. Well, there, there was basically a painter that I was like obsessed with and um, I reached out to him and I was always trying to buy paintings and he didn't ever have anything available. And we ended up getting on a Zoom. This was like you know, December of 2020, I think. And we just started talking like, they, you know, I just wanted to know everything about him and what he was doing. He was like a 19 year old kid in New Zealand. And um at the end of a, what became a two plus hour zoom, he was like, so you manage artists. Could you manage a painter? And then he had all these, you know, he had this interesting thing. Cause he was like in, you know, doing stuff in the kind of traditional art world, but he made or makes, um, little 32nd films, little horror films around each of his pieces. It's all kind of neo Gothic stuff. And mm. he makes these awesome things that he would put on TikTok. Mm. So we also had like all of these, <clears throat> 
kids as fans, like, you know, everyone from artists and influencers and just regular, you know, teenagers and 20 somethings and, you know, TikTok audience. And they all wanted merch. They weren't necessarily buying fine art, but they wanted merch. And he and I started having conversations about it. And, you know, he wasn't really interested in making merch because he is an artist, but he was like, I'll start a clothing company. Um, let's, let's go start a fashion brand. And uh, (laughs) next thing you know, I'm learning about knitwear. Um, you know, but that's, uh, again, that, and that's kind of going back to when you said like, well, why, you know, why were you leaving? Well, it was like, cause I could, I wasn't learning stuff. Like there was no situation, there was no time in my life at a label that I would ever be learning about making knitwear, you know, consulting for Arizona iced tea and helping them with their entertainment strategy for two years. I now know more about consumer packaged goods and beverage production and can wrapping. Now, is that the world's most useful? And it's like, you know, uh, no, I don't know where and when that becomes relevant in my life again. But I love learning that kind of stuff and knowing yes. about it and being around yeah. it and having that yes. moment of okay, I don't know anything here. Teach, teach me. Yes. Um, wow. That that's what you know. What an extraordinary way to learn that you set up your own context in such a way that you get what you need to get out of education. Yeah, I, I wasn't a school person, (laughs) but I'm a learning person. You know, my mom always told me not to let school get in the way of your education. Um, and you know, if I had tattoos, that would probably be like tattooed across my forearm or something. Um, cause I believe it. So this, this brings me now to talk a little bit about your fascination with crypto space and blockchain technologies. Um, yeah, because that's also this whole other expansive world. What are these features of blockchain blockchain technology that excite you in God, your efforts everything. to transform artistic practice or engagement or business? I mean, tell me how you got into crypto and blockchain. So, I, and I preface this with when I say I got in early, um, it is not because I bought millions of bitcoin at two dollars um and i'm i'm now sitting here just counting money i wish that were the case but it's not um but i was early and i get you know i started you know found out about bitcoin i think 2009 i started buying you know just messing around buying little fragments of bitcoin in like 2010 um and to me to to way backtrack growing up in private schools in Manhattan and growing up then kind of falling into different music scenes and stuff. Um, business and banking and the stock market and bond, that was like the devil to me. Um, and for better or worse, I, I kind of vilified it in my mind and I completely in some ways ignored it and, tried to pretend like it didn't exist and that I, I I was completely ignorant to it. Um, and enter crypto, which is by the way, almost like, you know, the things you talk about in it are almost, you know, and, and getting more and more kind of similar in a lot of ways by the day. But I was like, this is punk rock banking. Um, it to me was any, you know, it was almost like, oh, well, this I understand. I was like, I don't, know, I don't know why I thought I understood it, but I was completely intrigued by it. Um, As a kind of rebellion. Yeah, it was exactly. It was a rebellious way of 
being involved in that kind of stuff and trading and um you know ultimately making you know a little bit of money and um when you are young and at that point and discover crypto you get very excited about it and when you're excited about something and you're me you talk about it a lot so and when you were me and work in you know mostly kind of music all of your friends it's, it's a lifestyle gig right so all of my friends for the most part are also work in adjacent things um so for years they had heard me talking about crypto <clears throat> and so um pandemic starts and touring is shut down mm. and suddenly there's this kind of bull market mentality in the crypto space and nfts which had been around for you know, a few years prior um you know completely in kind of a, a very niche little community um starts to be something that artist managers and agents and you know artists starts sniffing around and saying oh well, we can sell nfts and make money and so people started calling me you know going you probably know about this stuff right you know about crypto yes i know about this and um i gave pretty much everyone the exact same conversation i kind of educated them about it and i said now please don't do this so what do you mean i said it is really early this is a real world and kind of culture you do not care about them they do not really care about you your fans do not care mm. you know this is bad for everyone um and i guess that not a lot of people were voicing that and a lot of people were saying yeah we should do this let's go do this and let's all go and people made a bunch of money um but i think a lot of them also looked you know a little dumb a lot of the projects were pretty empty most of them don't get talked about anymore a bunch of people probably lost some money you know on on the consumer side and uh <clears throat> I guess because of that, when as this world kept growing, uh, I started getting calls again. People being like, "So okay, so we can have an honest conversation about this." Like, yep. And the thesis hadn't changed that much in the sense of like, yeah, this is we are early. This is not, you know, we can talk about NFTs and digital collectibles all we want, and it can be a buzzword, and you can do whatever specials on whatever you know. I don't, this is not a mainstream thing yet. Um, and I realized that I could kind of, again, help be a middleman and tour guide and you know, help bring the right people with the right intentions in and help shape um, what at um, what, what adoption to Web3 looked like um, and help introduce people to a crypto, you know, to the real crypto native world. Um, you know, and by that, I mean the people who are, you know, have been there, who really care about this, who live, eat, sleep, and breathe this. Um, because I think integrity, you know, there, there's, there's an issue of integrity in it, I think, and an issue of like, you know, if you're going to go do this, let's go do this the right way. Um, and, and look, the other part of my thesis in it is 
we can talk all we want about Web3 and it's a fantastic buzzword. And um, I say it 500 times a day. You know what we don't say ever? Web2. We don't ever talk about, oh, did you go on this Web2 site? Because it's the web. And I think ultimately the web, what we talk about as Web3 is just the web, right? It's your your next iteration of your Chrome browser has a wallet, a crypto wallet built in. Like, right. is it not... Um, and so I'm, you know, a lot of what I try to do is help people kind of future proof, um, and be ready for that without, you know, running around yelling NFT. Um, and a lot of what I do is, you know, trying to find interesting projects and people who I do think will love and enjoy this space and help them either dip their toe in the water or jump in, in the right way, surrounded by the right people. So maybe this is the time to talk about um, Bowie on the blockchain project, because clearly this is something that you have a lot of passion for. It's a project that you talk a great deal about um, in terms of integrity. And maybe if you could describe how that project came about. And then through talking about that project, we could really understand what it means when you say an NFT or blockchain space or crypto space what that means through the lens of this project. Sure. Um, it was without a doubt, one of the most incredible and surreal things I have and probably will ever get to be a part of. Um, How so? Well, let, let's put it this way. <clears throat> when my son came home from the hospital in his nursery at home, over the changing table is a caricature of David Bowie. <clears throat> my dog's name is David Bowie. Is my well, my dog's name is Bowie, named after David Bowie. Oh, no. uh, I'm not a casual You're a fanatic. Fan. You're I'm, a not, fanatic. I'm not like a casual fan. Like I, you know, he's I revere David Bowie. And uh <clears throat> I this is I swear to God, this is not a joke. I could not write this. I was sitting on my couch and I get a text one night that's I, I'm sitting there on OpenSea, which is a the, the world's largest NFT marketplace. Um, probably, you know, I'm buying something and I'm literally sitting there on my lap next to my laptop is my dog Bowie. And I get a text that says, can't really say much, but can I introduce you to the Bowie estate? They want to talk about NFTs. <clears throat> Don't tell me that your son's name is Bowie. No, my son's that would be, it would be weird if my dog and my son had the same name. Um, but so, you know, basically end up starting this dialogue with the um, executor of the Bowie estate, who is just an incredible, incredible man. And um, I mean, basically, it was everything I'm talking about. It was someone who, had, you know, had heard a lot about this technology, had heard a lot about what was going on in this space was very, very cautious. Um, and also had a kind of bullishness on, you know, <clears throat> as someone who knew Bowie well, that, you know, Bowie would have been really excited by this. And, <clears throat> you know, I, I really wanted to do it. It was like one of those, like, you know, all I want to do is say, yes, let's go. But at the same time, I was like, I, 
this has to be, and I think they had the same feeling was this has to be right. You know, we're not just going to do it to do it. I certainly, you know, they obviously are going to protect the Bowie uh, legacy more than anyone. I certainly was not going to be the person who tarnishes the Bowie legacy that I was not going to have that on me. Um, and there had to, for me, there had to be a very specific why, right? The, why are we doing this? What is our North star for this? Yeah. What, what is the, what, 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 what is, what is the vision that emerged from your desire to do or from their desire to do this? So basically spent the weekend thinking about, um, Bowie and, you know, kind of everything I knew about him digging into his art collection. Cause he was a giant art collector. And that was kind of the first part to me, right? I went, okay. And I, and I knew this about him. I was like, he was a huge art collector. And I happened to have, you know, had the catalog of the Sotheby's auction when they auctioned off his uh, collection. So I started going into, you know, okay, what did his collection look like? What kind of art did he collect? Okay, this is really eclectic. There's a lot of stuff here. Then you start thinking about him as a technologist and a lover of new technology. And you're like, well, okay, you had a met- you had Bowie World before Metaverse was even a thing we talked about. Okay, you had BowieNet, you know, which was his own uh, ISP and kind of fan club site, right? You had Bowie Art, which was ultimately became a showcase of art that he liked and art made by his community. And you're like, this is there. There's a lot here, and then you start thinking about um, Bowie bonds, right? And the idea of him having commodified his work and like, well, that sounds a lot like a bunch of NFT project. And I just went, okay, this is a guy who kind of had the ethos of the crypto artist before that was a thing. And it kind of just went, well, if the blockchain is the permanent immutable ledger, then let's go put this on the blockchain. Let's go put his legacy there but we on the blockchain was literally a working title that was like a joke I like, to me it wasn't I like a joke it, it was like it's a great that I like was the name. idea it was like how they, we're, we're gonna go and cement this and how do we do that and so what does that mean to put um his collections on the blockchain well, why does that it become it wasn't his collect it was let's do a project that puts on chain right let's puts on this ledger that can never be you can't really delete anything from it ever um, that he was here and what he, you know, let's, let's create something in his honor and to, to honor that legacy. Um, and then I kind of kept going back to, he was a huge supporter of new artists. He was a digital artist himself. So sorry, back to, I got access to the Bowie archives. They have a right. meticulous archive and I got to, you know, get to know the archivist and uh, through it's my partner, digital. Joaquin, everything had been digitized. Um, now, not digitized, not on the web, but I basically, right. anything could be searched and then I would get literally screenshots on my phone. I would get a text, like, you know, anything. And uh, I mean, literally, you could have said what was in, you know, the, whether it was an outfit he wore, a ticket, you know, a ticket to one of his shows, art he had done, a photograph, everything is meticulously databased and um so my partner joaquin and i you know on the project basically went and uh started coming up with you know kind of 
narrowing down this idea. And it became, let's get a few of a handful of the best artists in the crypto art space. Super established to new and up and coming. And give them free reign to create anything they want in tribute to Bowie. Um, with the added bonus of if they want, they can incorporate anything from the archives that they want. Um, which no one has ever been able to do. And uh, it was incredible because through that, you know, I got to meet. So, you know, I kind of then got to go, okay, who, who do we want? Who makes sense here and figure out, you know, who are the artists who are Bowie fans? Who are the artists? And, and I mean, I literally did things like finding, you know, going through his art collection, you know, through Bowie's personal collection and basically tagging, you know, coming out of cataloging it and tagging, you know, landscape, uh, you know, British artist, uh, African, you know, contemporary African artist, sculptor, you know, literally trying to say, okay, what, what are the connections here and how do, and then I would kind of go around and start doing the same to um, crypto native artists and digital artists and kind of go, okay, where, how do we find, it wasn't about finding a one for one match with everyone, but there were certainly people here like, okay, this guy's work kind of reminds me of this guy's work. Or I think what this guy does with his art is kind of interesting to this. And also just, you know, people who were fans of Bowie's and um, people whose art represent and whose art represented certain things that I thought were kind of key to Bowie's legacy. Um, and we came up with a dream list and started approaching them. And I mean, almost everyone said yes. Um, and yeah, I, see, I, I, have, I, I wrote down some of the, the artists that you've chosen. <laughs> Defaced, Ferocious, Glam Beckett, uh, Pussy Riot, Jonathan Wolf. How are these artists connected in the sense of a kind of overarching curatorial vision that you have? So what is it about those artists that, that makes sense to bring together as a group? So it's individual. It's not... I, it was never about having art that cohesively went together next to each other. Yeah. It was about having an overall, you know, having, and I actually even feel weird. I don't, I don't think I've said anywhere really why certain people were picked. Um, <laughs> Do you have an I, internal sense of why? You oh, picked I, I, I could, t I could tell, you know, I, I kind of, I would tell you, you know, over a drink, but like, I, I don't like, I kind of like the idea of, of people just, thinking about it for themselves and not kind of, I, I don't want to put project my thoughts on it onto the art itself. I, I haven't even told the art, like I've never even said to the artist, this is why I selected you. Right. Um, but every single, I, I could, I could literally write you an essay on every single one of them. All right. Why. Over a drink, over a drink. Yeah. We're not going to talk about this. Um, um, Cause I'm very curious. I looked at these different artists. And I'm, I'm just trying to figure it out like as a kind of energy field, what do each of these artists, you know, how do they, yeah. how do they have a dialogue together through every the one of, of them? Bowie? Every one of them was different. And every one of them was so incredible to work with and their teams. And I mean, my God, Fuocious ended up making a 10, the winner of the auction for his piece also was able to claim a 10 foot statue of the piece 
that is wearing an actual suit of one of Bowie's stage costumes that we gave him from the archives. Um, and it was just an unreal thing we got to do and, you know, getting to work with so many incredibly, incredibly talented people. And, you know, there are people who I, you know, now kind of call friends and people who, you know, I, you know, this, this project took about a year and a half from, you know, inception to launch. Um, so Andrew, what makes this specifically crypto art versus just other kinds of art? What is it that's special that these works were made in a particular way and live in this kind of distributed network? What makes that special? Um, well, first of I mean, all, <clears throat> it's art, right? At the end of the day, it's all art. Uh, now, there are it, it is a medium for art. Um, as far as a medium for distribution goes, um, some of the pieces it is you're able to, the artist is able to do things that you couldn't do with prior art forms. Um, like what? That, that's what I want to know. Like, yeah, what, so there, I mean, so it's not every piece. Some of the pieces are just, you know, straight up art. And if you wanted to go have it printed to put on your wall, it will look awesome. Um, there are other pieces that are coded to change with the time. Uh, you know, literally time of day. There are pieces that morph. There are pieces that, um, you know, there, there were mechanisms burnt into, uh, built into each of them, um, you know, which can allow for things to happen in the future or can allow, you know, there's, um, look, but at, at the end of the day, it's just art, right? To me, this was a really pure art project. Um, right, I was trying to get at what the specific um, blockchain technologies is enabling a different kind of experience for users to have either with the artwork itself or with the artists or with the community of artists. Well, first of all, I think community is a really important word in that. Um, I think the fact that all of these artists really do have and cater to their community, their fans, their collectors, um, not cater to, but, have, you know, really interact with. Um, and I think all of them going back to kind of the idea of Bowie as this pioneer of an ethos. I, I think the thing that's different. And again, I reiterate over and over, I am not an artist. Um, and I don't want to speak for artists. Um, what I think makes it unique in a lot of ways is the point of view of the artist um, is a world without a middleman in many ways is a world without um, a need for any kind of traditional rules um, is a world of collaboration is a world of direct connection is a world of dynamic movement mm. um and that's what makes it special to me Understood. Um, you know yeah ultimately it's you know it's all just art it being on the blockchain is to me like having it, it just is a, a means to have it exist 
Um, and look, part of it, and the other part to this is in having the, the integrity and the real understanding and care about the world that we were going to inhabit. One of the things that was very important to me was the smart contract. Um, because at the end of, end of the day, that's really part, you know, that, that's a huge part of what an NFT is, right? It's what is the actual code that you are gaining access to um, in this token. <clears throat> and one of my goals originally, there, there's a guy named Richard um, who started a company called Manifold. And they are, you know, the kind of go-to smart contract creators for uh, NFTs. Um, and they are responsible for a lot of the advances that you've seen. They're pretty much fully responsible for this giant open editions movement that started a few weeks ago, um, you know, through this platform that they've now created that's kind of open to anyone. Um, but one of the things that was incredibly important to me um, at the beginning was, you know, I, I kind of wish list wise was I said, I want a manifold contract. When we when we mint this, I want it to be minted on a manifold contract because I wanted people to understand from the beginning that we really cared about every aspect of this and that, you know, they're really this was not done to exploit Bowie or to exploit the uh, NFT community. Um, you know, and look to that end, everything was 50 50 partnership between the artists and the estate, and 100% of the proceeds from, you know, profits from the estate went to charity. Um, they went to, um, uh, care. care. Yeah. Um, which is an amazing organization that, uh, Bowie's widow Iman was the global ambassador for. So, <clears throat> you know, you can't even say, well, they did it for the money. Like they didn't make money. Uh, <laughs> they, we really, we, we did this for, Art and for you know having a, a means to and, and for better there was a lot of a lot of discussion when we announced it on launch both positive and negative about this project what were um, some of the negative things that came up just that you know this was being done for money and you know bowie wouldn't have wanted that you know look i think what's interesting and I, I learned i learned a lot from doing this one of the biggest lessons first of all i, I have never put myself out there. Um, my mantra in general is it's not about me ever. I, I work in service to my artists, to my clients, to whoever. It, it's not the Andrew Keller. This happens to maybe be the Andrew Keller show. But I, and by the way, if, if you weren't you, I wouldn't be on this. Um, right. When Thank I you. did the Bowie project, I had to put myself out there a bit publicly um, yeah. and do an interview with Rolling Stone and do, you know, all this stuff. And, um, first of all, it was the, it was the first time I, I really understood what artists go through and, you know, having <clears throat> all of a sudden I'm being tweeted at, and I'm being criticized and I, and I don't like that. Um, it's an, ex it can be exhausting. It, it was, yeah, it, you know, but, and to me, you know, it was like, I wasn't going to go and, you know, rebut every comment that was made or any of them, but you kind of went, no, you're missing the point. Someone go, Oh, you, you know, he would have hated this. I'm like, well, I have a really good authority. You know, I, I can't tell you for sure, but everyone's pretty much telling me that he wouldn't, you know? Um, but I think 
part of it was, you know, having to put myself out there in that way that, you know, and, and understand that kind of criticism. Um, what I really learned also, or kind of had to realize was David Bowie is an absolute global icon. And if you are a global icon, you have a lot of fans. And if you have a lot of fans, there's, it's a very, very large cross section from which to take. And so you're kind of like, well, if you think about how many, you know, people have probably listened to David Bowie's songs, or you look at how many million of people follow him on, you know, his, his estate on whatever social media, you're like, okay, so 200 negative comments isn't really bad. No. Right. You're like, okay, you know, but look, I'm not going to say it didn't hurt because we had done everything we could with such kind of kid gloves to kind of go, we're going to make sure this is done as delicately, you know, but, um, you just cannot control. You can't you, you make everyone happy. Um, no. and look, NFTs are, it is a controversial area and there are plenty of people who have plenty of stuff to say about them. Um, but all I can say is that I am so proud of what we built you know, nice, in that, and it was such an incredible experience. Kids of the apocalypse, kids of the apocalypse, which I think <clears throat> if, if this is launching the day that you told me it is this, this podcast, uh, yeah. it is also the launch date for kids of the apocalypse. So All right. Tell us go, about that. Go mint, that's a, that's go another big, uh, transmedia project that, has yeah. music it has nfts there's a comic book there's a mixtape release it's it's awesome it's really fun and exciting and again like it you know i think this is you know this is one we talk about how this would not have really been possible before in a lot of ways um tell me how how so what's so, changed that allows this kind of project to so, expand and exist I, I mean, in a, so this a is not way. a new so kids of the apocalypse was a concept and an idea um, and a story that was conceived about 10 years ago. Um, and it first hit my radar then. Um, there was a Swedish production duo and group called Sound of Arrows. And Stefan from the group um, had started this thing, you know, had this kind of side project idea, Kids of the Apocalypse. And, you know... I would say, imagine a dark comedy version of, uh, I'm going to say X-Men because it involves mutants and, um, you know, but imagine dark comedy X-Men vibes um, that is alt and internet leaning and kind of self-referential. Um, which also has a music component, you know, now, now we're going to imagine that they're gorillas, right? Like the, like the band. Um, and there's this whole story and a really immaculately created lore and backstory and universe. Um, <laughs> and now imagine 10 years ago saying, okay, so let's make this happen. Where, where the fuck do you begin? Um, and so this idea kind of sat there for a long time and, uh, you know, imagine if you'd gone to a label and said, okay, so we're going to, we want to sign this thing. It's the sound, you know, it's kind of the soundtrack mixtape 
band to the store. Well, is there a move? No, well, there's nothing, you know, I, well, but we have these pictures. It's really cool. You know, um, now gorillas was able to do it. Cause Damon Albarn is Damon Albarn. Um, you know, sound of arrows, unfortunately wasn't blur. Um, so, you know, cut to 10 years later and I'm reconnecting with my friend, Derek Davies, who was the founder of neon gold, which was a label, um, that I had actually done a label deal with when I was at Columbia and who had signed sound of arrows and put out their first EP. And he was still in touch with Stefan. And he said, you know, and now Derek's also doing a lot of stuff in the web three space. He has an incredible company called medallion. Um, and we're catching up one night and he starts telling me that he's talking about to Stefan. I said, wait, what? Cause the apocalypse, I remember that. And, um, I partnered with them on bringing this to life. And, uh, it, it is, you know, I, I think we have put together a pretty incredible team. Um, you know, it is, uh, we've got Derek and the medallion crew. We've got Stefan and his crew. We've got incredible, incredible kind of creative agency and creative house who have been working on all of this alongside Stefan. And, um, we've got the guys at Benchmob who are, you know, I think some of the best digital architects out there, um, from a social media strategy perspective. Um, we've got an incredible community manager. Um, we've got a advisory board of people who really are some of the best and brightest in the space, you know, from Cooper Turley, um, you know, on the music NFT side to, um, John Roger, who's one of the advisors who, you know, I, I was like legitimately starstruck on my first zoom with him because he was, you know, and then no one knows who he is, you know, he, you'd have to Google him, but he was, um, he was marketing for star Wars, um, for Lucas. And then he became the first head of franchise development for Disney. Um, and you know, if you're a nerd like me, who kind of lives for blockbuster marketing and how this all works in franchises you're like okay you literally were behind some of the craziest stuff ever and um yeah so you know basically the project we have released a few songs um, okay there's the music there's the music component to it we have released one video which i think might be the number one i, I don't i i hate data points and like bullet points because they get outdated quickly and or i'm wrong but i think it is the number one uh most traded um piece on glass which is an nft music video protocol um so i think our video is you know I think it's number one on there um and you know we've also created something that i think has never been done before which was create a mechanism um which uh integrates traditional streaming with uh nft minting and wherein, in order to gain access to the allow list um, for a mint, you actually had to interact with and log yourself into your Spotify or Apple account and pre-save. Um, because, you know, it is still early in as much as, you know, this is a very uh, blockchain native project. I also want everyone to be able to hear the music, even if you don't know what an NFT is. Because um, the music is fantastic. Um and basically you will be getting uh the, the launch today 
is season one and it's the eight main characters um which you would randomly be uh assigned um each and each of them has its own um you know unique combinations it's, it's a pfp project this the first drop um so you'll have you know unique properties on each of them um and each one has its own theme music um this is all happening on the blockchain. This is all, this is all happening. Uh, you will get to meet your very own. Um, and, you know, it's kind of part one. Um, you know, we are doing this on Solana, which is a chain that, you know, I think allows for very quick movement. Um, mm very you know when we made the decision to do this on solana um you know gas wars were a huge issue on ethereum and part of what we want to do is really involve our community in the storytelling and really let them into all of the bits and pieces of the lore and to me a lot of that will come from surprise and delight and from airdrops and from opening up your wallet one day and seeing things you know in there that you didn't know were going to be in there um so is the so, wallet is the wallet the, the the digital space through which everything is integrated and enters into? So I mean, your wallet is what where you hold your cryptocurrency, where you hold your NFTs. So you know, you may look one day, and you know, if, if you're a holder of Kids of the Apoc of a Kids of the Apocalypse NFT, you know, who knows what may end up in there? Um, you know, we've also you know created an amazing community in the discord who have you know and the, the fan art alone is pretty incredible um you know it's a, it's a very active community there um there is like you said a, a comic in the works i think you know a lot of the projects that have come out um you launch a project and if it's successful a lot of people go back and go well what do we do with this ip um we did the opposite. This was IP that needed a means to emerge. And, you know, we found it in this both as, you know, from a fundraising mechanism, as well as, you know, just a way to introduce a concept this large, um, into the universe. Um, and again, it's really fun. Um, and I encourage people to check it out because we really are trying to build something unique. Um, I think the website is one of the coolest websites, you know, I have seen, um, especially for a project. It is like, you know, kind of fully immersive. Um, and we're going to play with it. You know, there's, we're going to, we'll, we'll put all the information in the, uh, in the, <clears throat> um, down below. Yeah. Awesome. So how will the comic book emerge and, and the, and then the full length film, how is that all going to be well, full, integrated full length, as a full length film? Um, it is kind of, it is a, it is a dream. Um, we are, you know, kind of working towards, um, and I don't even know, you know, it, full length film versus, you know, short form versus, I, I think, this will be, I can tell you that the, the plan is for this to be a story told in a moving visual media. Um, we are still trying to, you know, we're, we're still having discussions about how and what that will look like. Nice.
it sounds so full and really exciting. My God. Yeah, I, I'm excited for the amusement park. I keep joking. I'm like, I want to go to kids in amusement park. No, I told you. World. I want to like, I want the action figures. Like, and, and you know, those are the things that we really are. Not not the amusement park, but the, you know, we are working. You know, there there's uh, nice. it's fun. It's a it's uh again. I go back to if if I just like to be able to have fun. Before we stop. Is there any, was there any, I think you told me there was a, a new kind of work that was, that was going to happen that you wanted to share that. Yeah, there are, there's two, two things. One of them is, <clears throat> you know, just fully for fun. There, one is fully for fun. Um, but Hey, I'll, I'll throw it out here. Um, kind of going back to saying that, you know, I learned a lot putting myself out there on uh the bowie project and kind of got a moment to experience some of the you know harder sides of what artists i work with you know may go through even you know as a little drop um i felt at some point that it was important for me to put myself out there more i felt that there was an opportunity i wanted to experience what artists and creators in this space go through from the challenges mm -hmm. to the just the general creation just the step-by-step -step process um and you know i've always my father was a photojournalist i've always loved photography i again i do not consider myself an artist um uh, but i had this idea um a little while back going back to the idea of you know, the blockchain as a permanent immutable ledger. Um, and the idea of photographs, you know, particularly snapshots as memories. And what if you minted those memories to the blockchain um, and then they're there forever? Now, what happens if you then renounce your ownership of them? What happens if I have, you know, and again, if you're using the, the snapshot as a representation of a memory, what if I then minted it and then sent it to you and now it's yours? Right. I don't have that. Is that do I no longer, what does that mean to, for someone else to have my memory? Um, and, you know, I, I'm not, this, I'm not trying, this is not that deep, um, but it was an idea that I kept coming back to and I finally went, you know what? I need to bite the bullet and just put this out there. Yeah. So, um, memory loss is what it's called. And, uh, I was, you know, I spoke to a few artists in the space, you know, my, my first thing to anyone, I really wanted to make sure that I didn't offend anyone by doing this in the sense of there's a set amount of liquidity in this space. First of all, I'm not doing this. I, I, I don't, know that one of these will ever sell i don't even have prices on them what i've said you know to friends of mine is pick one i'll send it to you send me your you know your tezos wallet um but they, they're already minted uh there are a few minted okay. um but i wanted to i wanted to make sure that no one was going to go oh now you're trying to be an art you know this is a thing now you're trying to make money i, I didn't want to do that i wanted to really you know so i, I really talked you know i kind of went to my friends like why are you asking us like you don't need our permission and you know and everyone was really encouraging and supportive and um i wanted it to be accessible to my friends and to people who may not necessarily be 
super, super, you know, in deep in this world. Um, at the same time, I felt that this really belonged on Tezos, which is another blockchain, which is, um, you know, from, from an art perspective, slightly more experimental, slightly more um, low-key, less pressure. Um, so, you know, <clears throat> it's on Tezos, it's on Object. Um, nice. How do we get, how do we access it? If you go onto Object, um, the project is called Memory Loss. Um, I'll I'll send you a link, and yeah, you, know, you can literally if if you see something you like, and it's owned by me, tweet me your Tez address, and I will send it to you. Um, and and I you know plan on just you know, and I do have ideas for for future you know ways this will evolve. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's really just again, it was just how could I be in this and not try something? Um, and so there's that. That is my kind of just, that is just for fun. Um, the other thing, which is more serious and, um, you know, but again, really experimental. Um, if someone has made it through listening this long, uh, you may remember that I was talking about how back in the day you could know everyone that was putting music up yeah. uh, on certain platforms. There's an absolute revolution in the music NFTs. And there are some artists doing really amazing things and some artists making really amazing music and building a fan base and building patrons and building um, their own worlds on their own rules um, in this space. And I really loved the feeling of how early it was and how small it was and how easily, you know, I mean, really how quickly you can kind of get to know the collectors, the artists. Um, and I wanted to, again, create a way for artists who are curious to safely and with integrity and respect integrate themselves into that world. Um, and I also really wanted to find a way for visual artists to start playing in the music NFT space. Um, I thought that when we scheduled this, this would actually be out already. There was, there were a few delays, so I'm not going to say that much more, but okay. the short of it is, um, I am launching an NFT based, uh, singles label. Mm-hmm. The name is we few like my company, except that the E's are threes. Okay. And, uh, it is going to be a place for, you know, I think great new music and great visual art to collide mm. and hopefully again, just bring people into a world that I'm pretty excited about. Fantastic. Really congratulations. It all sounds so um, compelling and full and it sounds exactly what you should be doing. It's a great I, I just want, I want the things that keep me up all night. Like I want the things that make me, you know, the, where you just push through and go, I just want to do this. And oh, I know. Yeah. It's fun. I mean, min- minting my photos the other night and sending them to friends at, you know, two in the morning was like, I can't believe I'm doing this. This is kind of embarrassing. Like, I don't even know if this is not good. I, I don't even think this is good. I don't know what this is, but like, you know what? Like, let's go. Um, because otherwise you're too comfortable and I don't want that. 
Andrew, thank you. Thank you for your generosity in doing this conversation with me. Really, really appreciate it. And you and I have a lot more to talk about. Thank you for listening to me rant. I feel like I just, I, I've never spoken mm-hmm. so much in my life. It's good. It's good. I, I, had, a I, lot really of, I had a lot of caffeine earlier. That's good. That's good. Thank you. Um, can You and I should try to find a, a, another time to talk because we're doing some other stuff that I want to share with you as well. Totally. Okay. okay. You know where to find me. I do. Thank you. Thank you. Talk to you later. Mm-hmm.